0: Hello, and welcome back to the Entrepreneurial Coder Podcast. My name is Ryan, and this is the show where I talk to developers, programmers, and coders of all types who are in business for themselves, and I try to figure it out and get a sense of how they got to where they are. So if you're a coder that wants to get into business, or maybe if you're already in business and you just want to see where you can go next, then hopefully this show is of value to you. This is episode 13 with Sean Grove. My guest today is Sean Grove. Sean is a software engineer turned startup founder who has gone through Y Combinator twice. First in the summer of 2011 with a company called Bushido and more recently in the summer of 2018 with a company called OneGraph. In the gap, he ran engineering for a payments company, gave dozens of conference talks, contributed to several open source projects, tinkered with NES emulators, and started meetup groups in San Francisco for ClojureScript, ReasonML, and GraphQL. Sean, welcome to the show hey thank you for having me absolutely so one of the things that you are up to that i'm i'm very interested in digging into is your involvement with y Combinator and uh you know i think this is a very um well known very important institution for young startups uh in the bay area um before we get there though, maybe just take us a little uh further back how did you get into programming and uh how did you get your start with uh what you do now yeah sure
1: um so i I think my story is probably pretty common to a lot of developers. You know, I liked video games when I was young. I uh, got into uh, kind of QBasic and, and batch programming uh, as a kid, and uh, I didn't have a computer until probably I was a young teenager. <clears throat> but uh, I was pretty fascinated by them, so trying to I wanted to make video games. I thought I really liked programming, and I was lucky enough to land a job as a uh, programmer for a summer. Um, Doing some sort of like PHP web work and it was probably close to the worst job I've ever had and so at <laughs> the end of that uh, three-month period I decided I wanted to do anything but be a programmer um, but later on uh, when I was in university I was at an undergrad research uh, lab and no one there could program and so that was kind of my foot in the door to be able to uh, like work my way in and actually get a, a position there and so I got kind of handed around the lab, implementing various people's experiments, and uh, actually found that I, I enjoyed it uh, much more than I remembered. Um, and you know maybe it was the difference in culture and expectations and, and the domain. Uh, but I realized that you know there was something about programming that I liked. And um, so I, I went pretty deep into that and um, ended up getting a job as a software developer uh, for the first my full-time job
0: in probably 2009 or so. Okay, what was it that you didn't like initially about programming? I'm always curious about this because this is a kind of a common story. It's, it's certainly my story. Uh, I've, I had an experience similar to yours. Didn't didn't like it out of the gate. But what was it, uh, if you can remember in particular, that that you didn't like about it initially?
1: Well, I think it was kind of an old-school programming environment in many ways. Um, you know, you had to dress a certain way. The room that we worked in was one long wall with one long desk all along that wall. And then there was kind of a monitor, 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 monitor. And the manager sat behind us looking at that wall. So <laughs> kind of imagine there's the manager right behind your back the entire day, just potentially watching you at any given time. And people would come in. Oh, and it was it was in a room inside of a building, so there were no windows whatsoever. So just oh, fluorescent gosh. lights, this one long thing, mandison behind you. People would come in dressed, you know, with a button-down shirt and tie, program for six or seven hours and leave and not say anything. And it was this hellish experience of, you know, it was it was not socially engaging. Uh, it felt very kind of paranoid. Um, the work itself was also, uh, I, I think, it could have been interesting. It was, you know, building forms with uh, PHP, which I was not, you know, it was challenging for me at the time. But I think that there wasn't anyone who was so deeply engaged with it that was trying to figure out like, oh, how do we make this better? How, mm. you know, what are the next steps? How do we learn? It was very much, this is a job. We come in here, we sit down at the right. computer, we type for six hours, and then we leave. Um, and I, 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 I kind of extrapolated and thought that I guess this is what programming professionally must be like. right?
0: Gotcha. Okay. So, I mean, you, you're definitely an entrepre- entrepreneurial guy. Uh, you've got uh, that sense about you from, from just even your bio, from what I, uh, what we've talked about in the past. Um, and it sounds like the, the kind of anti-entrepreneurial spirit that was in that job you didn't like so much. Have you always uh, kind of been entrepreneurial in this way? Does that go back to childhood or is that something that developed later uh, in your maybe teenage years or, or beyond? Yeah, I I don't think that,
1: um, you know, maybe I can look back at a couple of things and say, well, I guess that was potentially entrepreneurial. But I, I had a serious issue with kind of confidence and, and whatnot um, as, a, as a kid. So I never would have thought of myself as being capable of running a business. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a fairly small town, and I didn't expect to go to university. I didn't expect to start a business. Uh, it was unclear to me what you know, kind of job I would be deserving of, what I, what I could even do, right? Hmm. Um, so it, it took some time to um, maybe work. You know, I, The first couple of jobs I got, so I, was, I was very grateful to have them, and it took time to kind of dive deep into them and realize that there were limitations that were very frustrating. Uh, one of them was um, a job I, I really liked was as a kind of IT consultant. And we would, uh, you know, we'd back up people's Outlook files and we'd uh, upgrade their servers and do all this kind of stuff, um, you know, in person. Uh, and interviewing was really tough for that. It was a very manual process to figure out if someone knew, you know, uh, or to, just to ascertain what the individual knew, right, whether or not they'd be able to do the, the, the work. And so um, I ended up, you know, this is probably 2006 or something. Um, and. Windows Server had just come out with like the Hyper V stuff, mm-hmm. and so I ended up setting up a virtualized environment where that we could just mail an applicant and say, "Hey, look, if you um, you know if you're interested, uh, there are these ten problems with this server. Um, you know, just go through and and uh, fix them up and ping me whenever it's it's ready." Hmm. And that way, you know, we would have this standardized way of onboarding people, of uh, checking if they knew what they were they're doing and whatnot, and. Um, the, the, the head consultant was like, this is actually a product. Like, this is something we would have paid for. You mm-hmm. could also sell this to other places. I hadn't even realized that. I was just trying to solve my own problem. I, it, right. it, it took a long lot of convincing that, um, you know, I might be able to start a business uh, around this stuff. I was just trying to solve little annoyances.
0: Right. Right. Well, that's cool. I mean, that's, uh, you know, everything that you hear as the best way, quite often, anyway, to get into business, to develop a product, to start to think about, you know, the, the kind of business you might do is very often the advice is to solve your own problem first. Um, yeah. because if you have that particular problem, it's likely that other people are going to have that as well. So, you know, you can find a market to serve if there are enough people that have that problem, that's sort of a good way to, to get into it. Um, was that the case with uh, Bushido? I, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, and, and maybe tell me about Bushido. I don't think uh, we talked about that before, but uh, what was that all about uh, back in 2011? Yeah, so that was um,
1: pretty shortly after this company, Heroku, had been acquired, and Heroku was just like this magical experience uh, where if you just had some Rails app, you could just you know get pushed to their servers, and they would take care of like spinning up the servers and, and managing them, and it was just amazing. Uh, and then on top of like this really solid service, they just had a beautiful sense of aesthetics and design and user experience, which is pretty unusual for a such a, a back-end focused company. Uh, and then they got acquired by Salesforce by, for admittedly a lot of money. Uh, but it was unclear, you know, how Salesforce and Heroku were really going to work together. And I really liked the founders. I, I definitely respected them. Um, and there was kind of this movement where you could see everyone was trying to do Heroku for X, Heroku for PHP, Heroku for mm-hmm. ASP. Um, and you know, I didn't really think the founders were like that. They always seemed to be like, well, let's just assume that Heroku is going to be standard, right? Like, everyone is going to do a Heroku-like thing. So if that's the case, like, what could you build on top of Heroku? If you could just take this kind of infrastructure layer for granted in you know, a year or whatnot, as the world races towards that, um, maybe start building for that world. And one of the things uh, I experimented with was being able to go to any GitHub repository and just click a button and spin it up on one of these, these instances. And so I built that out as kind of an experiment, and it worked really well, um, whether it was on Heroku or on our, our own infrastructure. Um, the experience was really nice, and I, I realized kind of that... I can now spin up a, a bug tracker, a CRM, and whatnot that are all open source. I could work on them very easily. Share those those um, improvements, you know, very open source like, um, and you know, people might pay me to to host all these instances, right? Um, and if they could pay me, I could actually maybe do a rev share with the developers, right? So kind of like an app store for open source. Mm. And I thought if we could get the economics right, then it would be kind of a game-changer, right? It would be sustainable for open source, which is always the challenge that people are are, are trying to face today. Is like, how do we make open source something you can spend a lot of time doing? Yeah. Uh, and I thought, you know, right now, the world gets a lot of benefit from open source, but very little of that is actually funneled back to the authors, uh, which is not necessarily a problem, but it'd be cool if it it could be funneled back. Mm-hmm. And so I thought maybe if we could build this hosting platform Uh, that manage the distribution of open source, that manage the patches, that manage the data um, synchronization between all of them. Uh, That would be something users would pay for and then that would actually be able to sustain the open source developers as well.
0: Okay, gotcha. Okay, so that uh, was conceptualized. Was it uh, immediately after that you applied for Y Combinator or had you worked on it a bit prior to Y Combinator?
1: Uh, So I think I started on it probably a week after the acquisition was announced uh, from Heroku, in in the back of my mind. So I was at Sauce Labs at the time. I had been talking with the Heroku folks for quite a a while. Um, And so I I kind of like, these events are uh, co-located in my mind. It was like, Heroku did this, and I was like, all right, Heroku's dead. Um, What's the next thing? And so it probably started about a week after that. So it would have been towards the end of December 2010. Mm -hmm. And then I applied for YC in uh, the next batch, Um, so it would have been around April of 2011 or so.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so and you you're you've gone through it again with one graph, which we'll uh, we'll talk about for sure. Uh, what's going on with one graph? But I'd love uh, if we could maybe chat about uh, Y combinator uh, and the experience of Y combinator, both maybe the first time and the second time that you've gone through, um, because this is something that I think a lot of people are intrigued about, uh, especially um, you know young entrepreneurial types. Um, they don't have to be young, but anybody really who is who is uh, interested in doing startups. Uh, they see this as kind of you know a, a nice looking option to apply to Y Combinator. I know that it's very challenging uh, to get in or it can be. Um, you know the acceptance rate uh, is is low, I think, because it's a it's a very in-demand program. Um, what can you tell us about your experience with Y Combinator? Uh, sort of maybe even take us back to like um, you know the experience of applying and, and getting accepted and, and all that. Uh, we'd love to hear about uh, what it's all about in that program.
1: Yeah, um, I think I got a bit lucky um, being in the Bay Area for the first uh, time I applied. Um, Actually, I had applied several times before that and had been rejected for, I think, three times or something. And I was down in um, Southern California when I had applied, and I moved up here, and I thought, you know, I'll try again sometime in the future, Um, but I'll just work as a software engineer now, which is pretty exciting stuff. Um, And I was working on uh, Bushido. I was working on this kind of deployment technology, I had this cool demo where you could just like uh, line up these 10 browser windows side by side uh, on a GitHub repository. And you just click each one in rapid succession, and you'd see all of them start deploying. And within a minute, they were all like new instances of, of the app that you were looking at. And I ended up showing this to a friend of mine who was in the current batch of YC. And he got so excited uh, that he ended up emailing PG, I think, almost every day. Uh, telling uh, so, Paul Graham, the the Graham, one of yeah. the founders of Y um, Combinator, telling him, "Hey, you have to give uh, Sean a chance. You have to, you know, uh, mm-hmm. interview." And uh, I, I think that that probably set the expectations very high and mm-hmm. for for them. Um, but I think it was it was very good to have a champion, right? So someone who believes in you so strongly that they're willing to go to bat for you. Um, mm-hmm. So it was still a nerve wracking experience. Uh, the interview, I was. You know, everyone who who gets in typically feels this, but it's uh, if you make it to the final stage, you have this ten-minute interview uh, with the you know YC uh, group, and everyone leaves feeling like they completely failed it. And okay. I was I left and I was I was heartbroken. I was like, man, we did such a terrible job there. There was mm-hmm. no way we got into to YC. And-
0: is that because of the feedback that you're getting as the interview progresses and or, or is it you know the looks on their faces what What leads to that would you say
1: well it's it, they ask uh, such incisive questions they're they're so good at extracting signal in ten minutes uh, mm-hmm. that it means that pretty quickly uh, like within a minute or two, they will have probably reached an edge of your problem space that you haven't thought about yet. Really? And they wanna know uh like why you haven't thought about that and you know, what are you gonna do about this and um what what are other people doing in this space? Uh and they're just very good at you know, I, I suppose the more you feel like you've been caught off guard and the more surprised you feel, um, the more you feel like, well, I, I was not a master of my domain there, right? And and that's that's not a good look.
0: Mm, gotcha sound it sounds like it's tougher than a phd dissertation almost like it's a oh
1: I, a, i've not gone through one and i i, I wouldn't think so I'm, I'm sure a phd dissertation is significantly more difficult
0: <laughs> yeah i guess at least it's longer that's for sure um okay so so you go through the interview you feel a little bit uh beat up by the end of it uh what's next what happens after that
1: yeah so we went through um the uh you know we got accepted and we we started right away and um, both of us quit our jobs and went full-time um, on uh, Bushido in probably May of 2011. And um, I, I think I let kind of that, um, that lack of self-confidence and that, that self-doubt um, eat away at some of the productivity that could have been there. Because when you get in, it's a, a, a tremendously impressive group of people, mm-hmm. uh, very intimidating. Uh, people who have, you know, won the uh, Math Olympiads, uh, people who have uh, won the ACMs, people who have started, you know, Justin Kahn uh, was one of the advisors there, T-Cone, um, Jarvis, the founder of Scribd, was there, uh, on and on and on. Uh, in my batch alone, uh, there was uh, Firebase, Parse, and Meteor slash Apollo. And mm-hmm. so just like, and and the Apollo founders were, uh, also, people who had founded like Act Blue, which is like the largest mm. democratic fundraising thing they had raised two hundred fifty million dollars over the course of like a couple of years. Um, one of them was the I think lead engineer for Asana at the time had created wow. a custom language for front end engineering and there 's this feeling of like whenever you 're talking to all of them it 's like one of these things doesn 't fit and it 's me right like these are all very impressive people um, it 's a little bit of imposter syndrome. Um, But it was still a very, very useful um, experience. Um, So got a a much better sense of what does it actually mean to build products, what does it mean to talk to customers, to uh, raise funding, to talk to investors on how to interpret um, just investor uh, minutiae was one that was, I think, very surprising um, that I don't think I would have... It would have taken years um, versus months.
0: Right. are those skills and, and sets of knowledge that you picked up there, are, are those explicitly taught or is that more so stuff that you're starting to infer as you go along?
1: Um, I think you infer them. There are things that um, are explicitly said. So for example, the way that you know a investor likes you is if after the meeting you leave and you look down and you have a signed check in your hand. <laughs> Otherwise, like they didn't like you that much. Um, and I never had any of these experiences, so I just thought, well, I guess they didn't like me that much. Hmm. Um, but it's it's an important way of looking at it because an investor is um, always incentivized to keep a really good relationship with you. Right. Hmm. So even if they don't like you, they will ideally never tell you that. Right? The, the way it will come across is, uh, hey, I really like this, but you know, I'm looking for more in, in this domain right now or something like this. But I really believe in you. I really believe in this product. It's going to go far. Uh, keep me in mind whenever you raise your next round. Right? Mm. Like they, they, they always want the option of being able to get in the next time, and no one wants. And typically no one will do it over email. No one will reject you over email. Uh, they'll give you a call because no one wants to be that famous investor who passed on Uber or Twitter or whatever with, like, right. you know, this won't work kind of thing, right? Um, and so those kinds of things were explicitly taught of, like, Look, you are going to waste a lot of time if you are not looking at just the final results here. You really need to be pushing towards that final result.
0: Okay, interesting. So, okay, so you're uh, you're going through, you're learning lots of stuff. Um, it's how long is the program? Is it like a four month deal? It's uh, three months. Yeah, three months. Okay, um, and and from what I've heard, it's like pretty. It's a pretty. Good grind the whole time through, right? Like you're working on your product, uh, morning till night. You're not doing a whole lot else, uh, you know. Aside from that, was that your experience uh, when you went through? It's like you know, focus solely on the company.
1: Yeah, you're only supposed to do three things. It's like eat, uh, work on product, and talk to customers. Right? Like those That's are cool. the three things you're supposed to do. Like eat, eat, sleep, uh, product, and customers. I think. Um, in the most recent batch, they had added one, which is workout. Like you should right. stay healthy, because um, uh, a lot of people were maybe omitting that for the three months. Um, but yeah, it's it's intense. Uh, the way they they phrase it is that this is probably the three months of highest leverage in your life. Right, like every hour that you put in right now will probably have a hundred x return than an hour you put in after the the program, uh, because you're building up. Like, there is a crescendo with the final presentation, which is called Demo Day, where you kind of present to you know, a couple hundred investors. And what you're trying to do there is uh, create a feeding frenzy uh, where the investors are afraid of missing out, so they will actually move much more quickly than they otherwise would. Because mm. the, the incentives are just not aligned whenever you're normally fundraising. And it's best for an investor to sit back and watch and see how things are going. Uh, whereas for you, you need to get that money as quickly as possible and get back to building your product. Mm-hmm. And so um, the idea is by creating, uh, you know, a having an effective graph, right? Showing that in the past three months during YC we've gone from X users to Y users, right? And our, our you can see how this curve is going, or we've made this much money, or uh, whatever it might be. Uh, that is. Uh, Used as fodder to get these investors excited and start to compete with each other, so that you can raise very quickly and get back to work.
0: Okay, interesting. So, uh, what what happened with Bushido? What's the what happened at Demo Day and and beyond?
1: Yeah, so the Demo Day went pretty well. Um, we raised some money and went along. Um, I would say that uh, I did a lot of things wrong with Bushido. It's it's all on me, but. Um, in many ways, it was kind of too early for market. So to give you one example, uh, I think during the summer of 2012, I was working on like, custom compiling Linux kernels with um, LXC enabled so that we could get the cost of running these individual open source packages um, like to something manageable. Because most open source is written as single tenant. And so that means for each customer uh, Bushido had, we basically would run another instance And in the cloud, you are effectively RAM-limited. Like, that's the main thing you pay money for. And so each of these Rails apps was taking up lots of RAM, and so it was just very, very difficult um, to run them both securely and at scale uh, for any sort of, like, profit. And so there was a lot of technical work trying to get that to uh, be more scalable. And really, like, now you would just put it in a Docker container and it would just work, Mm. right? Like, there was a lot of like missing pieces in the technology stack that I didn't realize were actually entire companies worth of problems. Uh, and Bushido was trying to take on maybe seven different companies worth of problems. Uh, and I think this is sometimes a problem that uh, software engineers as founders run into. Um, I think one of my favorite quotes was from um, uh, the old CEO of uh, Heroku, Adam Adam something, Adam Gross, I think. And, uh, yeah, he's like, all right, Bushido is way too complicated like never underestimate the 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 power of just solving a simple problem Mm. if you look at dropbox it's an incredibly simple problem Uh, and as they have added more features recently dropbox has actually become more annoying Um, freak is one of these things where it's a super simple crm inside of your your inbox but it turns out that if you can solve that simple problem well it scales to a lot of people and it's it's this very valuable thing and a lot of engineers uh, feel like inherently there's value in solving much more complicated problems. In fact, several sets of complicated problems. Uh, but there's a problem of like both boiling the ocean with that approach, and often also that like a product that solves several complicated problems uh, probably will have a very limited audience.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's true, because you're really, you're starting at that point, I guess, to intersect a whole bunch of different like you, like problems like you say which uh you know as soon as you start to have lines that cross one another i think you're starting to exclude a large swath yeah. of the population that might have you know just one one or two maybe of those problems right um yeah. so if, i guess if you get so kind of customized to solving all of those problems where they intersect then like you said you're really starting to exclude a lot of people um that's really interesting. So, okay, so Bushido went uh, through YC, raised some money, uh, and then uh, what's what's after that? What's uh, you you're now with uh, a company called OneGraph, which you founded. Um, take us there. What's um what's the story with OneGraph? And and maybe I'm, I'm familiar with OneGraph. Uh, we've talked about it before, but uh, maybe just explain for everyone uh, what OneGraph is, what you do there. Yeah, so OneGraph
1: is um, a pretty simple idea. It's just a single API endpoint that you can hit uh, that will give you graphical access to things like Salesforce, um, QuickBooks, NetSuite, Spotify, Stripe, um, and with a really nice uh, developer experience on top of them. So it's, in many ways, a much simpler problem uh, than Bushido. um, But it, I think, has um, broad application as like a platform piece. Right, Like, uh, everyone, every time you do a bespoke integration, uh, it's a bunch of work Work going and reading the documentation, figuring out how uh, this API does authorization, um, authentication, rate-limiting, pagination. And the idea is that snowflake nature, each of those unique uh, bits between the APIs doesn't actually give you any value. Right? It's not like this pagination is super impressive compared to that pagination. It's just additional work that you're required to do. And so if we can just kind of vacuum up all of those, those little annoyances and normalize it in a way that means we can build really good tooling on top of it, suddenly like integrations that would take you maybe a week or two to do can be done in a couple of hours. And like people typically are not super excited about doing integration work, right? It's just kind of dirty work that you have to get done. And so if we can just automate that as much as possible and make it go away, I actually think that that makes a lot of people happy. Uh, yeah, so that's that's uh, what we're working on right now. Um, we did uh, Y Combinator with it uh, in summer of two thousand eighteen, uh, so that was my second time through. But I built the original prototype of it maybe around I think January of two thousand fifteen, and this is very shortly after GraphQL had been released. And I was I was pretty excited because it solved some of the data access problems that I was working on, and I thought, wow, this this. This feels like the future once I build a kind of a prototype of one graph. Uh, but I was just at the tail end of uh, Bashido at the time, and having fought through this hard slog of you know being ahead of market uh, for maybe four years at a time, I thought I do not want to do this. It's too early to actually do a graph tool based business in two thousand fifteen. Um, mm-hmm. You'll have to spend the majority of your time building out a bunch of tooling, and even worse than that a ton of time educating customers on what is GraphQL, uh, why is it better, um, you know, is it open source and whatnot. So um, I set that to the side um, and I got a job uh, running engineering for a payments company. And um, the idea for OneGraph, I mean, there were lots of things that, you know, I, I wanted to work on, but I just kind of forced myself to be bored for a little bit and just kind of focus on engineering problems rather than business problems. And um, but the, the idea of, of one graph kept coming back. And every time I had to do an integration uh, at the company, which we had to do dozens or hundreds of them, um, I, it just felt like it's, it, it felt very barbaric. And I thought, like, we, we, we could do better. Um, And my co-founder was at um, Facebook at the time, um, and he was getting pretty itchy to leave. He'd been there for a while. Um, He joined via the, uh, or on the WIT AI team. So the, um, I think it was called M, the Facebook's assistant that they they tried for a while. Mm, And then he went over to the GraphQL team, and he was ready to to leave uh, and start a company. So we left a little bit early, I think. 2018 was still early for a graphical company. Um, But we just planned for that, um, in kind of like how we set up the company strategy, um, how we fundraise, how we went to market, all that kind of thing.
0: Gotcha, okay. And so I'm curious, uh, second time through Y Combinator, is it, the same feelings that you had from the first time, especially when you're going through the initial, like the application, the interview, all that, uh, or did you have more confidence the second time through? Was it a little bit easier to, to get past the interview stage?
1: Yeah, I was definitely, I mean, I would almost say, more cynical this time through. Like, I knew exactly okay. what I wanted. Um, I was much less uh, patient in many ways, okay. and just kind of like, look, this is, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing YC a favor. Uh, it, like, this, this should go both ways, um, uh, not, not that I'm doing it in favor, but um, it's not entirely one way. It's not like YC is doing everything for me, but I, I, I expect that I'm giving some equity of my company to YC in exchange for uh, some leverage, and so I really want to get that leverage. Uh, and I only have three months, uh, you know, to, to maximize that. Um, and so it was definitely much more effective in, in that respect. Um, I don't know if it made me any friends, um, being so demanding, um, but I think that's okay.
0: Okay. Gotcha. What does, I mean, you know, I've been curious cause you've mentioned it a couple of times now about the leverage that, uh, is available to you as you go through YC. One of perhaps the value props of YC is that, that leverage that you get. What does that look like? What's the, what is that leverage that you, you were able to get as, you know, part of going through the program?
1: Yeah, it's going to be different for different uh, categories of companies. Uh, so, I, I can't really speak to, for example, what the bio companies would get or something like that. Um, but as far as dev tools, in particular, a dev tool like OneGraph, where I knew we were going to market early, um, where there were still a lot of people who had never heard of GraphQL in 2018. Uh, and it was going to be another couple of years, probably, I guess, maybe 2020 would be about the right time. Um, that meant that. We needed, we're gonna have a very hard time uh, getting into companies in a business critical way, right? Because what, what was gonna happen is we would go to companies and we'd say, look, we have this solution to a problem that you don't even realize that you have. The solution mm-hmm. is um, this technology you've never heard of. And also uh, we are a new company that has just started last month. Uh, please put us into the heart of your business, right? Mm-hmm. In a critical way. And that's, that's a really hard sell. And so, what I specifically wanted from YC was the ability to um, get past those three issues. And in particular, um, you know, YC has 150 companies in the batch that we were in. And so, that was kind of a hunting ground of these, these companies where I could basically say, look, YC fam promise, uh, you have this problem right now. I'm going to make it go away. Uh, you can call me day or night. And we literally spent, you know, evenings hacking in people's basements um, for from our batchmates, uh, fixing their problems. And we did a lot of bespoke engineering for them. Um, and when things went bad, we were on call for them. And but that that gave us the ability to get a bunch of companies a bunch of revenue early on that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to get for probably another eighteen months, I think.
0: Okay, interesting. So that it's relationships, that's that's uh, a very kind of common piece of leverage, I suppose. Is it, I mean, I, you mentioned that demo day is your chance to get in front of investors um, and you know make your pitch, get them on board with uh, wanting to invest uh, in you. Are you talking to investors as you go through the program too? Are you establishing relationships with any investors or is that just really reserved for the end?
1: Uh, there's a strong temptation to. Uh, in fact, if investors find out that you're in YC, they will almost certainly figure out some way to poke at you through a friend or something and say, hey, let's just grab coffee, you know. Um, yeah, and it's almost 100% of the time a waste of time. It is not a okay. good use of time. Uh, because what they're trying to do is uh, get it, they're trying to get leverage, right? They wanna take a look at this thing so they can either pass ahead of time or you know, get in at a cheaper price uh, than someone at demo day. And it's just not super uh, useful for the entrepreneur because, yeah, even if it's a 30 minute coffee, um, and you're just like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna grab coffee with this person. For most people who have never talked to investors, um, they're actually going to end up spending a lot of time in the back of their head, kind of thinking about, oh, what should I talk to them about? What should I wear? Um, and like, actually you'll probably lose a day. And that's, you know, more than 1% of your entire time in YC. Mm -hmm. And so that's a significant sacrifice to give up for just this 30-minute talk that you can just as well have after demo day. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you definitely, I mean, there there are people who do, and sometimes it works out, but the vast majority of the time, it's just not a good use of, of time.
0: Interesting, okay. So, I mean, like many things, I suppose that Y Combinator is useful for some startups, some... Cases, but maybe less useful for some others. Uh, do you recommend that it, like anybody and everyone who wants to do a startup uh, might look into YC? Or you know, when, how would what would you say is is a good indicator that you know your startup might be a good fit for YC, and you might want to take the time to familiarize yourself and apply and go through all that?
1: Um, I think it's uh, a good idea for everyone to fill out the application that it's, even if you don't even submit it, the idea is those, like I mentioned about the interview, they're they're somewhat incisive questions and they kind of make you think about what you're doing and how big is the market in ways that um, it's almost like having a little bit of a formal advisor, right? An advisor is usually going to kind of keep you to to task and say, look, you know, are you guys actually executing how you're supposed to be? How have things improved in the past three months? Uh, What are you blocked on? Like, where do you actually see this going? And uh, in the absence of that, we can often find ourselves kind of wandering off into the the wilderness, right, and, and getting stuck in the technical weeds or or whatnot. And so the the application itself is really good to fill. It addresses a way of grounding yourself and making sure that you're 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 being answerable in in some ways. Uh, for the the program itself, I think uh, there's. Pretty good chance that it will be good for your startup. Uh, The question is really when. um, You know, when are you going to get the most leverage? Is it you're working a full-time job, you have this idea, are you going to quit and start YC and start from scratch? Uh, That that could be useful. People do that. Uh, Or is it something like you've built this uh, on the side for maybe a year, you have some users. And now whenever you get into YC, you're going to be able to use that money and that time to really, you know, scale out quickly. And uh, by demo day, you're going to have something amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like, what, what is the, the difference between when you start and when demo day comes around? And how do you maximize that? At which point would you actually max? like, would YC provide the most fuel uh, for your startup? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to be different for, you know, different individuals. Uh, for me, um, the first time around, definitely early on was a good thing. Um, it mm-hmm. taught me a lot. Um, taught me maybe in particular how silly a lot of the the goals I had were or the way I was thinking about it and what I actually needed to focus on what actually mattered mm. um, and I think this time around I had a much better sense of that and so it was about um, like I wanted this specific metric to move and so I, I waited until we were ready for that
0: Gotcha. What are some of those silly metrics, if you don't mind me asking, like, is it stuff around revenue or just like, you know, milestones of other sorts?
1: No, no, no. I think yeah. actually those are potentially very reasonable. But a lot of the time, you know, engineers will be like, well, you know, this this isn't gonna scale past a certain size and I should rewrite oh, okay. this and make it, it to scale this way. Or we can't talk to that company about a partnership until we have these other things in place. There's no way that they'll even talk to us. and uh YC was good about being like, why? Why mm-hmm. can't you talk to them? Just go talk to them. Like, if they say no, they say no. Fine. Like, get get to a no as quickly as possible, right? and mm-hmm. and get that off the table, uh, so you don't even worry about it. And yeah, so I, I think that and like maybe getting past the fear of rejection and whatnot, um, just by virtue of like having to do it again and again and again during that very intense three month period. Um, meant that I realized I was worried about this thing that I shouldn't have worried about. Like just just by immersion therapy basically. It's like, okay, that that is actually not a big deal.
0: This is the thing I should be focusing on. Gotcha. Okay. revenue goals or customer growth or whatever it is. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Um, okay so so now you're you're out of YC for the second time. You're working on one graph, um, and you're early with one graph. OneGraph is, you know, a new company, you're uh early stage startup. Um what's at this point in your startup, uh, and you can even maybe draw back to Bushido too uh, for the same kinds of things. But what, what's difficult right now? What's, what are the challenges that are sort of top of mind for you? I mean, there's lots, I'm sure. There's uh, you know wanting to increase revenue and, and you know make the product great and everything like that. But is there anything in particular for you that is uh, is, is a really challenging thing right now?
1: Yeah, the kinds of businesses that I like um, typically don't involve a ton of competition um like I, I I don't mind competition, but I like working on a thing that maybe no one else is is working on right now no one else sees right now, and just being able to go deep in in that interim period before other people hop on board but what that means is um uh, if no one else is working on it, then very few people are even aware that this is a problem mm-hmm. and I actually sat down with um one of our early advisors um who uh, yeah so uh, Ross Mason, he he founded a company called MuleSoft, which is all about hmm. integrations, and you know he he grew to this massive company. They they went public, and I thought he would have some good ideas um, about how to contextualize one graph. And his main feedback was, you know, we've been thinking about graph for years, like this graph-based access to data. Um, and it's incredibly difficult to communicate to our customers. Like, they don't mm-hmm. realize that they actually have a graph of data. What they think about is they have all these siloed bits of um, APIs and whatnot. And so if you come in and you try to sell them graph access to everything, that's basically saying, look, this can do so many things. It can do so many things that, in fact, it can do nothing, right? It's, mm. uh, it's almost useless. Um, and so his his advice was, Don't even talk about that. Just talk about one very specific narrow vertical and say, hey, we solved this one specific HR problem for you, right? Like integrating these two systems, we can solve that for you. Uh, And then it's it's just kind of by virtue of growing that and saying, oh, you want to connect this thing to this thing? And how do you get that data? And how do you visualize it all? Oh, that's kind of like a graph, isn't it? And like slowly educating the customer that way. And we see that kind of repeatedly, right? So there's a lot of talking to... um, partners who are unaware that their their customers, their developers actually want a graph-based solution, but they're not even thinking in that, that ter- those terms right now. And so I think that's the really big one is how do we uh, help move kind of the zeitgeist, right? How do we move um, people to be aware that this is the problem that they're actually trying to solve with all these bespoke solutions over here? Um, and the way we've kind of approached that is by just making the developer experience really, really nice. And we try mm-hmm. to um, open source a ton of the GraphQL tooling, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we just kind of go around and try to get it integrated into all the open source instances uh, that we can. So for example, uh, we released a GraphQL Explorer. And this kind of gives you a tree-like view into any API. And it's a very like visual metaphor, and it feels very cool to explore an API. It's, it's by far the, the best way to explore an API.
0: Yeah, totally. And and yeah. you you've given me the demo. We'll link it up. I think it's on YouTube, right? The the demo that you give the standard demo, and it's a great demo of one graph to one graph as a product, but also uh, exploring the explorer the uh, the open source tool that you built. So uh, we'll we'll link that up in the show notes. Yeah. So the idea was
1: to kind of take this around and say, you know, so now Gatsby uses it, for example, and uh, AWS Amplify just launched it, and um, you know, PostGraphile, Hasura, like it's it's hard to spread everywhere. And the idea is to simply elevate the experience of uh, GraphQL tooling so that it it becomes the standard. And the idea is if you can make that so good, it doesn't matter that it's GraphQL. What matters is that the the tooling and the experience is, is just light years ahead of anything else, right? It feels tangibly different. And by doing that, we help move people further along that line. So that you know, within the next eighteen months, everyone wants to have GraphQL. Everyone is aware of what GraphQL is and the implications of having a graph. And suddenly, there's a much bigger market for us to reach into.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Where do you? Th- out of curiosity, where do you think we are at this point with developer awareness on GraphQL? This is a space that I'm interested in. I, you know, I teach on GraphQL. Um, I, I use it in uh, the products that I build for my clients as a consultant. Um, and I, like I said, I teach on it. But I'm always curious as, as to where we are right now uh, in terms of like developer awareness of GraphQL. Where do you sense that we're at?
1: Well, it's, it's hard to say, right? Because I'm in San Francisco, which is this huge bubble in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. It's like being in the future, but with some probabilistic nature where like it may be the wrong future, it may not actually be the future that everyone <laughs> ends up in. Um, it, obviously, here, everyone has heard of it, um, you know, the, the Meetup has 1,500 people. Um, mm-hmm. In London, I think there are like a 1,000-something people. Uh, it's like basically a small conference whenever they have a Meetup there. Um, but outside of that, like at OneGraph, we still get people who sign up and they've never heard of GraphQL. And in fact, we de-emphasize GraphQL on our site unless we're talking to a developer directly, mm-hmm. uh, because what well, we people come to OneGraph thinking, you know, they've heard that this is the easiest way to get data out of, you know, Salesforce or whatever. And if we then say, oh, you, you do that via GraphQL, uh, it's like introducing this this intermediate concept that scares mm. people. Right? I'm I'm not, I've never heard of this. And in the beginning, we uh, emphasized that much more. And people would literally say something like, well, I'm not sure about this proprietary OneGraphQL language. Right? Mm. Who's really going to learn your own query language? And um, so I think that the momentum is you know it's, it's this crazy uh, curve right now. Uh, it's, it's increasing very quickly, but it's still very early. Uh, maybe the, the best one is like the Google Trends graph. If you go on Google Trends and you put in soap, rest and GraphQL, you see soap is like uh, down into the right, rest is up and to the right as you would expect. And GraphQL is this tiny little blip. In fact, I think we just crossed um, soap uh, in terms of Google Trends uh, last mm. month. So hmm. you know big month for, for GraphQL the curve is is crazy it's just a hockey stick straight up but it's a still a tiny amount um, in absolute numbers compared to rest because rest has been around for more than a decade uh, so I, I think that we're at where rest was maybe slightly before rails if you remember back in those days mm-hmm. where rails kind of really helped popularize and, and, and make things excited people excited about it um, and we're, we're slightly before that, where people are kind of aware of it but it hasn't blown up all the way yet.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely exciting times. I think there's no shortage of uh, kind of voices through Twitter that I hear almost every day of someone discovering it and, and being very excited yeah. about it. So it's uh, it's very cool what's happening, I think, in terms of the evolution of APIs. Um, what's your thought, to switch gears a little bit, what's your thought about uh, San Francisco? You mentioned you live in San Francisco. I visited you there um, and you know, I think a lot of people, at least those that I've talked to, they, they look at the Bay Area as, they wonder about whether it should be a destination for them uh, in terms of like if they wanna do a startup or even if they wanna work in tech in general. You know, is the Bay Area still a good destination? Um, at the same time, you've got a lot of people that are there's there's almost what seems from the outside anyway, like a mass exodus out of the Bay Area right now, moving to places like Austin, and you know Seattle, Denver, all these other places that that have good tech communities. Um, I guess my question would be: Is the Bay Area still worth it as a destination in your mind?
1: Um, it is for me. It's it's hard to say though. Um, it's very expensive. Uh, San Francisco is not a terribly well-run city in many respects. Um, it has a lot of problems, I think, that have been kind of shrugged off by a lot of the other neighboring states, have kind of become San Francisco's problem. Um, part of what made San Francisco very nice was its eclectic culture, um, you had like weird artists and, and things that were just kind of out there a bit, and that added to, um, maybe part of the attractiveness of the city in many ways. And I think uh, we've lost a lot of that as you know those types have been priced out, right? And they've kind of moved over to maybe East Bay and Oakland and, and whatnot. But that's still, even Oakland you know, is, is feeling the, the pricing pressure as a result of our inability to build housing up here. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of drawbacks. Um, I would say, and it's not for everyone, definitely not for everyone. But I do think that the concentration of um, interesting people here is pretty unique. Um, And there there are cities that have lots of interesting people, but they tend to be uh, pretty diverse. Um, At a conference I was at here, there were some um, people I was having lunch with from Canada. And they were saying that San Francisco felt very weird they were at dinner the previous night and they overheard this conversation about, you know, how to optimize the Postgres uh, query uh, planning engine. And I thought, man, that's, that sounds pretty interesting. I, I would love to have, like, been able to sit in on and be a fly on the wall. But for them, it was like, that's, this is too much. Like, why are you talking about this over dinner? Uh, similarly, I think in, you know, my, my experiences in, in, in Paris are that you have people who can go very deep in, in some areas, but you're not really allowed to like your work or be excited by your work. It, mm. it seems unhealthy mm. if you are excited by what you're doing. You should have other interests. And in San Francisco, I think the idea is, no, nah, like, it's cool, we're super into it. Mm. Uh, like, I, I spend a lot of time at Meetups, you know, running Meetups for CloserScript mm. and Reason and, and GraphQL and, and whatnot. And that's just because those are exciting things and I like working on them. I like talking with the people who are here. Um, and as much as I enjoy spending time in other cities, um, I I do miss that whenever I'm I'm not here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, it's, it's always been uh, a fascinating place for me to visit. I've been there, I don't know, probably 10 times now. And it's, Uh, I always like going back like it's definitely it's 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 a place where like you said there's a ton of interesting people Um, one thing that I found too like even you know uh, thinking back to uh, when we met up uh, last time I was in town and had some delicious hot pot at uh, your house which uh, was was very good my first time having a traditional hot pot Um, is that there's this like there's this network effects thing uh, in the city right like um, I was introduced to you by somebody else that I was there interviewing and that led to an interview that we did and that you know, there's there's uh, a strong, and from what I've heard uh, around you know, Twitter and everything too, there's just this really strong network effects uh, thing that happens in the city, which I think uh, probably provides a lot of value to a lot of people. Um, would you agree with that or what's your take?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's I think core um, to the, the value proposition of the Bay Area. And network effects are really difficult to overcome and, and build up elsewhere. Um, it's like the math is it's just against you. Uh, I actually think that YC is a pretty unique example of this, where they initially had... Uh, so PG had a no assholes rule. And the idea was that even if you were brilliant, if you were an asshole, they just wouldn't punch you. Right. And that, this was purely a selfish decision on his part, that he's like, look, I have money, and I don't want to deal with assholes. Right. Um, but it turns out that there was a secondary effect where you got all these people who were incredibly talented, they were ambitious, they were smart, and they were nice. And they started to help each other and like they help each other intensely in YC. And I think to a uh, somewhat lesser extent, uh, but still in the same vein of things like San Francisco is like that. uh, I emailed uh, this probably wouldn't work anymore, but I emailed um, the one of the founders of Stripe and asked me for lunch. And uh, I didn't have any strong asks. It wasn't like I had just heard amazing things about him. Uh, that he was this genius and et cetera, et cetera. And I had never met anyone like that. I didn't know what that looked like. And mm-hmm. so I literally just wanted to like, talk with him and ask him some questions and see what it felt like. Um, I think he was perplexed by the whole thing, but he was willing to do it. Like he, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he didn't ask for anything and uh, he, was, he was cool to meet up.
0: That's cool. Uh,
1: sim- similarly, I, I've had people who offer to help and people who I'm able to help and it, it's just kind of normal.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's uh it's definitely an intriguing part about the city and perhaps a reason to move there if you know, if it's if it happens to be for you. Yeah, I'd um, well, love to have more interesting people come out here, so I, I hope you yeah. will, will join us. Yeah, yeah, if you're out there and you're thinking about uh, these kinds of things, maybe YC or, um, you know, the, the benefits you could get by network effects in a certain place, SF might be for you. Yeah, okay. and I'm also happy to, you know, help with people with their uh, YC apps or if they have any questions about the city or tech or meetups. Yeah, happy to help out. Much appreciated. And uh, I was going to mention uh, we it's probably a good point. Uh, point to start wrapping up. And, and maybe uh, with that, you can sort of point people towards you where, where they might be able to reach you. Uh, also, anything you want to promote. Uh, I know we'll link up things like OneGraph and uh, some of these other resources that you've been talking about. Uh, but yeah, where, where can people find you and what do you want to plug?
1: Yeah, I guess easiest way is probably on on Twitter, uh, just S Grove. Um, but maybe a fun thing that I've been kind of engrossed in recently is um, my sister-in-law is working on a Game Boy emulator written in Rust compiling down to WebAssembly, and it's been kind of an interesting um, process for her because she's, you know, she sees herself as a front-end engineer, and so she's trying to break out of the box and, and then it's other stuff, and I've been revisiting it, and it's been really enjoyable to kind of, you know, see, to work with these much simpler systems that people did magic with, and there is this one um, video that is just tremendous! It's it's it tickles me in just the the most interesting way. It's uh, from the Super Mario Land 2 video game, and you know whenever you're playing the level, uh, there's a camera, right? Who's that's kind of tracking you around as you jump around the, the level, and that level is actually represented in working RAM inside of the Game Boy, and it's kind of this contiguous big memory block that's just part of everything inside of the Game Boy, and the code is supposed to make sure that you stay within that area of the working RAM. But it turns out that there was a bug in the first two versions that lets you break out of that. And what happens is you know, the, the pointer just knows that if you're falling, just keep increasing the Y offset of the camera. And it moves the camera from that bit of working RAM just continually down into the other parts of the Game Boy's RAM. So you can actually see like the code of the video game rendered as you know, Super Mario blocks. And people use this to actually hack the, like, edit the game by playing the game. So, they go through, they fall through the, the Game Boy's working RAM into this part of the, the RAM and then break the blocks down to a certain memory address and then trigger a block, which uh, will, like, they hit it, which changes the hex code in memory to 60, which triggers the final um, credit sequence. And so, people okay. use this to, break, to beat the game in two minutes and 30 seconds. There's this uh-huh. video of it, of like a speedrun doing it. And it's just this coolest, most recursive kind of thing that I've seen in a long time. Um, that's so that's cool. the thing I might might want to plug
0: okay cool I'll, I'll grab the link uh, for that from you maybe after this and we can link that up um, that's great so yeah uh, Twitter s Grove uh, people can find you there and uh, we'll definitely link up to uh, one graph and everything else um, well listen it's been a great time talking to talking to you today I really appreciate you taking us through uh, your experience and I think it'll be uh, certainly valuable for for a lot of people so much appreciated and uh, looking forward to the next time uh, I get to see you if not uh, when I'm there this uh, this fall then hopefully soon soon after. So thanks so much, Sean. No, thank you for having me. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Thank you so much once again for tuning in to the Entrepreneurial Coder Podcast. You'll be able to find show notes, including links to all the resources that Sean mentioned at ecpodcast.io. If you've got any feedback about the show, if you'd like to suggest a future guest, or if you just want to say hi, I would love to hear from you. You can say hi on Twitter at twitter.com slash Also, if you enjoyed this episode, and if you're feeling so inclined, it would be awesome if you could leave a review and subscribe. And if not, no hard feelings. Until next time, happy hacking.